Welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. Today we will be covering our first episode of Mass Effect 1. Some people have been asking, are you doing the whole, the whole trilogy? No, just the first game. Yes. We'll do the second game at some point in the future. Eventually we will do the whole trilogy. We're not doing another 20 episodes on one game or no. one series thing again. Never again. This will maybe be eight episodes eight. total at the, at the high end. Anyways, yeah. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm massively, massively excited to cover this game. This is one of my absolute favorite games of all time. And uh, whenever I'm busting up props and things like that, it means I'm pretty stoked. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Chrissy, uh, this, this jacket that I'm wearing was not was I, what I was originally planning on wearing. Um, I have like a, an N7 jacket that's going to oh, be coming in that oh, Chrissy got me for yet. Christmas, and she got this for Christmas. And then I, I got a couple banners, the, the Paragon and Renegade banners, right? Dude, just like um, that, you're a collector again. I'm a collector. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a collector, which is a Mass Effect term, which will come up in Mass oh, Effect 2. Great. Okay. <coughs> uh, anyways, um, I'm very, very excited to cover this game. Um, uh, this jacket it was actually for a short film yes. that we were going to make. Well, we actually filmed it. We filmed it, but we never finished <laughs> we it. We never finished it because I was not happy with uh, my performance as the main character in that movie. Yeah. But it was for a science fiction story. Um, it's like a 20-minute script. Yeah, and I've been expanding on that since. I'll probably turn it into a novel someday. Oh, sure, yeah. But um, <laughs> anyways, uh, we, we, this channel has mostly been us you know, kind of talking about JRPGs. Yes. And so... I'm very excited to step away from that a little bit and, and cover a game that for me, this is probably going to surprise a lot of people because I have a ton of passion for Final Fantasy, oh, obviously. Course, yes. I love the series. I would yeah. not have done all the work on Final Fantasy videos I've done over the years had that not been the case. I like Mass Effect and Mass Effect 2 better uh -huh. than pretty much every Final Fantasy game I've ever played well. outside of maybe Final Fantasy 7 or Tactics. Mm. But the rest of them, I like this series better than those. So Fascinating. I'm stoked. I'm like really, really stoked to talk about it. So we're going to talk about mostly today the, a little bit of the history of Bioware, but mostly we're going to yeah. focus on Mass Effect's development history. And then we played up through the prologue, which is just the first sort of like um, tutorial mission to yeah. Eden Prime. Yeah, and, and kind of after, play through that whole mission. Yeah, just through that yeah. whole mission. And uh, next time um, we're going to be covering the Citadel, all the way through the Novaria mission, I believe. If I'm wrong about that being the first one, because I think you can go to a couple different places you can choose, but I think we're going to do Novaria first. If I'm wrong about that, I'll put a correction in post when editing this later. Um, <clears throat> so that's where we're playing up to today. So, what is your experience with Mass Effect? Yeah, so this is the kind of game that I have started playing, I think, three separate times. I, oh, I really? have, yes, <laughs> I have played the beginning of Mass Effect many times. I've never beaten the game, and mm. I've never even come that close. Mm. I've gotten a few hours in. It's always so wondrous, so cool. I freaking yeah. love it. And then um, I don't know exactly what happens, but <laughs> I just stop. stop. I stopped playing the game. Um, <clears throat> And yeah, there you, you Would go. you say that that's common for you because you don't like finishing games? Or is this it's, the This is different because this, I don't, I don't even get more than 15% into this game, into mm. this particular game. Oh, so and I've always wanted to. Yeah. It was first introduced to me by actually by Dan. Um, yeah, and, Dan Condi. Right? Yeah, 14 yeah. years ago. Well, or maybe not 14. What was it? Like a year or so after it came out. Yeah. Um, 
and it's it, like it's super sweet. It was super cool, super cool. But um, I never really. But but the thing is that I I do know about this game. It's not like Xenogears where I knew very little yeah. going into it. Yeah. With this game, I have heard things, and I'm yeah. I know pretty well what's going on here. So it's yeah. not going to be like a totally blind. Well, it's it's definitely not jump as. Um, insanely complex a story. <laughs> so for anyways. multiple reasons, yes, exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I've never actually really experienced the whole story before. Mm. And yeah. I've heard it's it's phenomenal. And it is. I don't know why I never finished the game. It's, I, I freaking love it. I yeah. freaking love it. I mean, I know Landon played the first game multiple times. He and I would chat about it. I yeah. don't think he ended up finishing Mass Effect 2, though, or going much further oh, he than didn't. that. And so I know he was upset because his save data didn't carry over. Yeah, <laughs> because that, I hate he it when played that the first too. one on a separate console, right? Yeah, or he played it on the Xbox, but then two was we had it on the PS3 or, or, or PC version like or something like that. Or maybe that. it was Steam because yeah, something like that. Eventually, they released it on PS3, I think, the trilogy, but it was like yeah. way late in its oh, okay, life okay. cycle. Mm-hmm. It was mostly an Xbox and PC exclusive for a really long time, but in any case. Um, it was one of the first games I played after coming back from Vegas. Oh, yeah. So, like, I was gone for two years. I didn't really play video games, obviously, while I was gone. I think the last game that was, like, brand new that I had played before I left was, like, Shadow of the Colossus or something like that. Oh, sure. It's like a PS2-era game. And I left right as the new consoles were coming out. So I came in a little bit late, and my brother—my brother bought Mass Effect and Fable Two, and those were like the kind of two games I was playing around that time. Oh, Fable Two, man! (laughs) I did beat that one. (laughs) Fable Two is great. I love it. Oh, it's great. It's like not a super great RPG, but it's just like one of those games that are—it's charm makes up for everything. It's just very charming. All the weaknesses, as stupid, easy, and dumb as the game is, (laughs) yes, the charm. There are many. Anyways, but what's funny when you since you bring up Fable, I feel like the first Fable, yeah. um, kind of possibly influenced a lot of Mass Effect and what they were oh, trying to do sure. with the general idea of Mass Effect. Yeah. Um, because they were coming up with the idea for Mass Effect around the time the Fable came out. Yeah. And it was like, Because they had done you can do really Knights cool of the Old here. Republic. Yes, yeah. Before that. And before that. Those were kind of contemporary games, right? Yeah. RPGs at the time. Anyways, so I played Mass Effect um, at that point and... Dude, I was just blown away. For a number of it reasons. It is. It is a mind-blowing game. Especially in its time. Like, I think what really, there were two things in particular that really captured me about it. One was, I had never played anything that felt as cinematic as Mass Effect. Oh yeah, yeah, at the time, for sure. Like, Shadows of the Colossus is very cinematic in a lot of ways. But this felt like you are in a movie. Yeah, but the lighting was just... Yeah. So Shadow of Colossus with the PS2, that it, they just couldn't do as much with the lighting. Yeah. With especially the... Like real-time lighting, rim lighting. The back lighting, yeah. rim lighting, yeah, yeah. The really cool like hair lights and stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that they could do better because this game, Mass Effect, was made with Unreal Engine 3, yeah. which was a significant upgrade. Right. And basically every game started using Unreal Engine and like, 3. The, the way they were doing facial animation at this yes, point was yes. super advanced for the time. There's so many things. It did. It felt like a movie. And they that, got some pretty good voice actors. Too. Oh, the voice yeah. talent's fantastic. Yeah. Like, and we'll, we're going to go all over that because I have a lot of notes on that too. <laughs> good. But the, they even have like a film grain effect that you yes. can turn on and off. You, yeah, it's optional. <laughs> but I remember I would always play with that stuff on. Yeah. Because yeah. it just, it felt like you were in a movie. Yes. And that to me at the time was like a mind-blowing thing. Right. So like that was a big hook for me. 
But then also, um, it's the moment where you first access the galaxy map. That's the thing, yes. And that's usually when I stop playing. <laughs> I maybe, so maybe there is something to the overwhelming feeling. Because I look at that and I'm just like, this is so freaking cool. I can yeah. do anything. But have you ever been to a restaurant where the menu's they, like, there's like there's 50 too many things. choices? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you've got the little mini things where you can go with the story. But I always want to do all the mini things before I continue the story, right? Yeah. And anyways, I'm just looking at this. And I, that's around the time that I kind of am like <laughs> overwhelmed. It's not that it. I want to stop playing. It's just that I, it's, it's harder for me to choose what to do, and I already feel like I've missed. So one of the things, I have big FOMO in general, uh, fear of missing out, yes, right? Yes, And when you're playing a game like Mass Effect, it's like you've got to pick what you do, but that means you can't do the other thing, and mm. you will never do the other thing because that moment is bad. It's gone. <laughs> and I hate, because I always want to be OP in every game. I always want to be just super high level, just super good. It makes the game easier. It's just more fun for me to kind of exploit all the weaknesses of the game yes. and just become as powerful as possible. Yeah, right? I, I, like, I like doing that But too. you can't do the, it the way that I want to with a game like this. You mm. have to forego some things in order to get other things. Oh, because you make choices. That is very difficult for me to do. Yeah, uh, very see. difficult. I see. But Thanks. for me, I have to continue playing the game knowing that I made this wrong decision before. And it just throws the whole game off. I'm too much of a perfectionist. That's probably the better word. Yeah. yeah, I want to do everything that a game has to offer, and when I can't do it, and I'm just confronted with ever an ever increasing <laughs> amount of things to do, <laughs> and the, an ever a, a large number of things that I could have or should have done in the past. Yeah. Some people may love that, yeah. um, and I kind of like it conceptually, but practically, I have a very hard time. Yeah, with hard time. It. It's very it. difficult for me. Okay. Well, <laughs> when when I first accessed that galaxy map and it pulled it up, and there's some music that plays there. Um, oh yeah, that. So Jack Wall, who's the composer on yes. this game, he really went with kind of that Blade Runner synth. Vibe yes, I got it. an '80s feel to it. Yeah, and, and you get just, that with the intro song too. Oh, I love that yes. tone. That it's an feel. interesting choice, but yeah. I like it too. I like it a lot too. It creates this like feeling of just like wonder and like mystery and just like a vastness yeah. to space yeah. that like immediately transported me back in time to when I was probably about four or five years old. Yeah. It was on, I think, like a, like a July 4th evening or whatever, mm. or night, where my dad was doing some fireworks out in the street. Yeah. And um, when we were done, he was sitting with me on the lawn in Houston, Texas at the time, and he was pointing out all of the, um, the star constellations oh, and showing yeah. me how they connect. And so he said, this is the, how you know this is the Big Dipper, and yes, this is how you yes. know this is the Little Dipper, and this is Orion over here, and this is how you can connect it. He was teaching me how to do that. Mm. And that ignited this just passion and love for astronomy that I had all the way through um, like elementary school, basically. Yeah. I could not get enough. They have, um, in Houston, they have really cool space camps in the summertime. You can oh, go to well, for NASA's kids. Because NASA's there. there. Yeah, right? yeah. And so like That's I sweet. loved going to those, and just I couldn't get enough. I had this little headset that would have these little cartridges you could plug into it. They're like lessons. And they came with booklets. Okay, yeah. And like a little like mouthpiece. And oh, you could sick, you could speak dude. the answer. So it <laughs> would quiz cool. you as you and it was a little sci-fi kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And you'd go through the book and it would ask you questions about mm. the solar system or about uh, you know, astronomy and stuff like that, and you could kind of learn about it. And I, I would just do those lessons over and over again. And so that feeling that I had, you know, kind of lost a little bit as I moved into middle school and high school right. and got focused on other things, I was like transported back in time into this moment. And the, just, the wonder of the vastness. Yes. Yeah. It just like, it, and I, I cannot even like really articulate what 
an amazing moment that was, nostalgic moment that was for me. Yeah. That Mass Effect, obviously, the creators didn't set out to do, but it was just an emergent right. sort of thing for yes. me. And so those two things combined just absolutely hooked me into Mass Effect. And then the very competent storytelling and writing and, and character writing in particular just carried me all the way through that series. And so it's one of my absolute favorite games of all time. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm super pumped to uh, get researching into the developers who made it because I know so much about like Final Fantasy's development yeah, history, yeah. And, and it, but I haven't really looked into until now the guys who made Bioware so special during mm. its like you know first 15, 20 years. Um, it was founded, I think, in 1994, 95. Oh wow! And oh, then all the way up through basically 2010, 2011, in that range, they just like they never missed. The, everything mm. they made was so amazing. And so we've, we, I want to jump into that a little bit now, moving into some of the key developers. So um, the the guys who founded it. Um, there were three of them actually, and uh, they were actually uh, doctors. Mm. Um, they had like PhDs, and they were practicing medicine at the time. But they decided Sick. they wanted to get into making <laughs> video cool. games instead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so there were three of them, um, but the two that stuck around were Ray Muzika, who's the CEO and executive producer on Mass Effect. Okay. Um, and then Greg uh, Zestruk who is the president, or was the president of Bioware and executive producer on this game as well. Mm -hmm. um, all of these, these guys, guys from? are from Canada. Canada, so um, those are Montreal, kind of Quebec? Yeah, I think um, French Alberta, is, oh, is, Alberta is where Bioware's um, headquarters is at. Sweet. So anyways, they were basically putting all their own money into it and making no yeah. profit for the first several years. Mm. And so some of their wives were putting pressure on them. They said, you gotta choose here. Whether you're, because they were trying to, they're practicing medicine at the same time that right. they were running this game development company yeah. and making video games. And they're putting, you know, over $100,000 between them into like making this company that's making no money. So, yeah. um, anyways, uh, they basically got ultimatums from their wives like, choose to practice medicine or choose to make video games. Like, make right. one, one or the other here. Augustine Yip was, was the third. Okay. And so he ended up going back to practice medicine, and then Ray Muzika and Greg Zushik. Um, they decided to keep going with uh, with making video games. And so their first game was Shattered Steel, and it was like kind of an action shooter kind of a thing, right? Um, but but Baldur's Gate was their second project after mm. that, and that's what really kicked off Bioware as a company. It, it, okay. it sold really really well. So they started. That's kind of how they 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 started finding their success at Bioware was they were licensing um, from other popular yes. properties. Yeah, Baldur's Gate is a and d Dungeons and Dragons yeah. property, right? Or the, the world that they're using, the, you know, the lore, the characters, the mm -hmm. lands that are from D&D. Uh, &D. And then um, their next major hit was Knights of the Old Republic, yeah. which uh, Star Wars. Lucasfilm approached them after Baldur's oh, Gate sick. and said, can you make a Baldur's Gate in our Star Wars oh, universe Star Wars. with Jedi and Sith? Sick. And they were like, oh yeah, we're gonna do yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that one. So that's kind of how um, Knights of the Old Republic came around. Um, but you know, at that point, or after that point, I should say, um, they kind of came to a place where it's like they, they didn't want to continue just creating licensed properties like that. They wanted mm -hmm. to create an original IP. Yeah. Um, and something that would be you know, kind of like their own version of Star Wars, right? Mm. And that's where 
Mass Effect kind of uh, wh where they started, you know, uh, pre-production or, or planning on on Mass Effect. And there's a lot that goes into that. But they also had Jade Empire before oh, that. Oh yeah, that's right. Which was sort of like a like a Chinese um, martial arts influenced sort of RPG. Mm. But it's in the same vein as something like Knights of the Old Republic or Mass Effect, but just in that RPG sort of style. setting, right? Yeah. Um, and, but there's there's some things that kind of carry over between all three of them, right? Like they always have in in Mass Effect, it's the renegade and paragon yes. choices, the the morality yeah. sort of um, path, right? That your character can choose. Mm. I think in Jade Empire, it's like the open palm or the closed fist or something mm. like that. And then of course it's light side, dark side in, in Knights Star of Wars, yeah, the Old Republic. So they all kind of have a similar like DNA to them in that sense. Mm. That's like a very Bioware thing, right? But then you have um, really key players for Mass Effect in particular, Casey Hudson, who was the director. He has a really fascinating story behind yeah. how he kind of came in and got involved in Mass Effect. He was very inexperienced at the time. Because um, uh, he ended up uh, being the director of, of Knights of the Old Republic. Yes, yes. And he was hoping to just be like an art director or something. He's like, I oh, wish yeah. I had more experience because I would love to be an art director on that game. You know, mm -hmm. like, there's no way they'll pick me, though, because I'm just brand new to this right. game development thing, right? And then they call him in, and they're like, uh, we're going to make you the project director on Knights of the Old Public. He's like, what? <laughs> so, but he um, was very much the visionary um, in from, like, Knights of the Old Republic through Mass Effect 3, who really just, like, took Bioware into the stratosphere as a yeah. developer, right? He's... A really, really amazing guy, and there's there's a lot of stuff we'll get into about his history. Cool. But also, so he was the director. Then you had Drew Carpishan, who was the lead writer. And this dude... He is, wrote for the Knights of the Old Republic stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. He, that was his first game as lead writer as well, mm -hmm. was Knights of the Old Republic. Um, there's always, like, one developer I find on these series as I'm sort of, like, researching on them, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, Gears or Final Fantasy games or whatever we've covered in here, where there's like one guy I kind of get like drawn to and it's like that yeah. guy I feel like I connect with that guy. Sure. On like um, Chrono Trigger, it's Yasunoni Mitsuda. Of course. Yeah. You know, so there's like one person and for whatever reason on Mass Effect it's Drew Carpishan. I just mm. feel like he really like, I mean obviously video games are, a it's a collaborative effort. Right. So everybody's contributing a lot of, and you can't just pick out one guy, like they're the ones who made it work. But Drew Carpishan's writing in particular, I think, is really, really good. Yeah. And particularly, he's great with characters. And that's what Mass Effect does the best, is the way that the characters interact, the way that they, um, they work together is just, it, it makes it really special. And so... Um, well, I, it makes sense that a writer would yeah. occupy that spot in this game because of how much like, <laughs> writing there is in it's this game. Ton. I was looking it up. It's like 400,000 words. Yeah. And that's yeah, it's, like... It's like several novels. That's worth. a lot. That's yeah. more than like the whole Lord of the Rings, all three books, basically. It's like <laughs> it's like the first five Harry Potter books or something yeah. like that. Like it's a ton. It's a, it's ton. a ton. Absolute ton. Other uh, important uh, developers on this: Preston Watamaniak. I think I'm saying that right. Watamaniak. <laughs> these these uh, Canadian names are hard for me, but he was a lead designer, so like kind of a level designer. Um, you have David Faulkner as the lead programmer. Derek Watts as the art director and Jack Wall as the composer. Um, so together, they sort of developed what 
ended up being called the four pillars of Bioware. So these were like the four like foundational principles yeah. upon which they built their games. And it's interesting to me that they do it in the order that they do it. They list it in this order. Mm. Story, progression, exploration, and gameplay. And to me, that kind of was what made Bioware special was their, okay. the way that their story, their character progression and exploration sort of got you lost in these worlds that they would create. Mm -hmm. And it's like the gameplay is like not necessarily the most engaging it's ever not. in RPGs, you know, you at know, the time. But I also played, um, I played Mass Effect before I played Call of Duty or any of those Oh, games. sure, yeah. Um, it was actually really difficult for me to use the the <laughs> oh, sticks the twin sticks and, yeah. and the hiding behind stuff and looking around and yeah. it's it's more intuitive for me now. But at the time, yeah, I, that was very difficult. Like combat was really really hard for me, and I I did, was not yet coordinated enough with this new generation of consoles from the Xbox 360 on at, at the beginning. It yeah. was Call of Duty that got me to that yeah. point where I could do that. Um, but yeah, the gameplay was quite difficult in this game well, for a lot of reasons. It, and, and there's also just the fact that it's not... Like there's a couple of things that they've fixed, say yeah. in like the Legend... Or they've, I won't say fixed, I'll call it altered. For the Legendary remaster they just put out this year. Oh yeah. Where like it feels more like a modern shooter in oh, terms really? of its mechanics and its feel, right? Um, but like the idea that they had at the time, like a lot of the guns, especially early on, they had this drift to them. Yes, right? I noticed. And yes. the idea was that as it, you... Because it had a lock-on feature, right? So you could kind of lock on something. Like, not not immediately, but the camera would, like, yeah, I, on. Yeah, I think But, I but think there was, so, like, yeah. some drift so that it wasn't, like, too yeah, so easy. Yeah, so you would aim right? down the sights. It made it feel a little more... Particularly real. on, like, the sniper rifle. You'd aim down the sights, and there'd just be this insane drift that. to it. Okay, on and, the and, sniper. And you would, and you would like, you'd uh, time it so... Boom! As soon as they get crossed into that. the air, I hate that. But something—a lot of people did. Something reminds me of Halo with that, though. That Halo did something similar. Yeah, there was a, little, a little bit, bit of like, drift. and you have to like hold your breath to like yes. steady and then fire or yeah. whatever. And I was never very good at Halo. So, um, I, I get why people hate it because it yeah. is annoying. But and, but and that's if, out of. But the if new they version. didn't have it, and it's just there. Well, well, because it's That's an RPG, too, right? you improve your skills in the guns, and oh, the drift and decreases, then slowly decreases over the course of the game. So the idea is, it's an RPG mechanic, and I liked it for that reason. Interesting. It was like, okay. I'm going to choose to be better at sniper rifles, and I won't have the points to put into, say, shotguns or pistols, but I'm going to like specialize in that weapon, right? And so to me, that made it interesting as an RPG mechanic. But now it's like, and for some of the classes, you couldn't even, um, you couldn't even use some of the weapons. Yes, so it's like I this that, class, yeah. like disavows you. You're not allowed to use snipers in this class. Right. That's not the case anymore. You can use hmm. any of the guns in the new version. Interesting. And so it kind of takes away a little bit of that RPG, RPG aspect yeah, and yeah. makes it more of an action shooter aspect. Mm. But, anyways. Um, I really liked that about the original game, even though it's something that annoyed a lot of other people. But it was, for me, it, it's it, going back to those four pillars, right? Like, it, that's kind of the reason why I'm attracted to video games to begin with. Like, I think what I really look for is mm. the opportunity to be lost in another world and just like really immersed yeah. in, in with characters in a world that I can feel like I can go explore and learn about and Mass Effect is like almost a pinnacle of that for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. 
because there's so much lore. Like it's like Legend of Zelda was maybe my first introduction to that feeling. Yeah. But there's not as much of the <coughs> lore to uncover. Yeah. yeah <coughs> to really true. fill out that world or or really dynamic characters. Yeah. That yeah, you can yeah. come to like really you know love or like recurring who are kind of always. Yeah. And so like yeah. Mass Effect to me like took that to another level that feeling. And so even though gameplay might not be the greatest, like that's not right. really the reason why I'm playing video games. And that might sure. sound strange to some people. It's like gameplay should always it's be the first. Yeah, most go watch a movie. Part. But to me, it's like uh, if if mechanics are going to be the thing I do, it's like why wouldn't I just play chess or go no, play sure. basketball, go join a city league, and enjoy <laughs> right, the right. game of it, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I would probably rather do those things if I'm only going to focus on a game mechanics. Yeah. But for me, like video games uh, are all about getting lost in the world, and that's that's what Mass Effect did majorly for me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so early on, Bioware they wanted to make role-playing games their specialty, right? Uh, the success of Baldur's Gate led to an offer from LucasArts to do uh, Baldur's Gate in a Star Wars universe. Um, and, and I kind of talked about this already, but Casey Hudson. He was just a technical artist at the time. He was kind of low on the yeah. totem pole, and they, they made him the project director. And that game, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, was the first time that uh, Hudson, Karpishan, Watan, Watan, Watamaniak, <laughs> Falker, and Watts all got to work together as a team. So that's like where this particular team mm. that would go on to make Mass Effect, they came together on Knights of the Old Republic for the first time. Mm. And so they became like the real core like I was saying earlier, of the Bioware uh, team through the twenty, the, the 2000s, I guess, up through 2010, right? Um, so there's a couple of um, interesting quotes here from uh, Casey Hudson talking about like how he came up with Mass Effect. So they essentially decided at the top end, they were like, we want to do our own Star Wars. We want to create our own intellectual property. Yes. Our own version of that, right? We don't want to keep licensing. And so Casey Hudson basically came up with this insanely ambitious pitch. <laughs> of course. <laughs> called, it was just called <coughs> Codename SFX at the time. Um, and uh, like there was going to be this online element and all of these <laughs> things that ended up getting dropped and they eventually sort of re-implemented in like Mass Effect 3. There's a whole online yeah, side yeah. to the game. Um, but it was, it was so ambitious. It was so huge that like the guys at the top, uh, Zestrick and um, uh, Muzika, were kind of just like, whoa, like... Their jobs became to talk him out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, they... they they were so impressed with the passion that he was yeah. bringing to it that they were like, okay, let's just like shoot for the moon and go for it. Let's, <clears throat> let's do that. Yeah. And you know, some things had to get cut along the way. But So there's two, two resources, uh, one in particular that I want to point people to who want to learn about the history of Mass Effect. Um, there is, uh, it, it's, I don't know if you'd call it a book. It's like a 15,000-word, like, <laughs> like really long article or essay, but you can get it on like Kindle. And it's actually got some, um, not the Kindle version, but you can download a version like on your PC that has some interactive elements and things like that. But it was written by Jeff Keighley. So he was mm, a reporter sweet. at the time. And um, it is called uh, Mass Effect, oh shoot, it just went away. The Final Hours of Mass Effect is what it's called. 
Mm. I would definitely look into this because it's really, really fascinating to kind of see like how this all came together. It's really w well written and um, there's just like so much packed in here that like we're not going to have the time to like go over everything <laughs> on mm -hmm. the podcast, but there's a few things from this in particular I'm just going to be like straight up reading and, and, and quoting. But um, so here we go. Uh, SFX, right? Uh, Hudson had great ambitions as outlined in a one-page document he presented to the doctors. The first line said it all. With online capabilities and gameplay features that will redefine the genre, SFX will become a mainstream phenomenon and a must-have game for the Xbox 2. So they didn't even know what the, what the, Xbox, the Xbox 360 two. was going to yeah, be. Yeah. Um, Hudson's vision was to create a game somewhere between a turn-based role-playing, the turn-based role-playing of Knights of the Old Republic and the fast-paced action of the sci-fi shooter Halo. So Halo mm -hmm. was a big, it was, Halo was huge at the time. Oh, yeah. Halo was like the freaking yeah. top dog uh, at, at that time, right? He imagined a rich story with memorable characters, exploration in a spaceship like his favorite game, Starflight, and a robust online feature in which fans could trade and share the spoils of war over Xbox Live. So that was kind of the, the start, right, mm. of, of what Mass Effect was going to be, the original um, ambition there. And, um, of course, like, you actually get down to the brass tacks of the, the everyday development side of things, and it's like, okay, we're going to have to let go of that idea maybe yeah, yeah. and save that for a sequel or something like that. But... Um, for a, for a lot of stuff that they outlined or that he outlines that he wanted here, there's actually quite a bit of it that they were able to get in um, mm. from the initial idea. Um, but I've got a couple of um, quotes here from uh, Xbox Gazette. It's an article uh, that did an interview with Hudson talking about some of the things that it, it was leading up to the release of Mass Effect. He was kind of talk, talking about some of the things that made Mass Effect special. And I, I felt that this really put together in a good way, like, the elements of Mass Effect that for me, like, the draw to what makes it, like, a special series, why, why it was a great game. Yeah. So they ask him, concerning the dialogues and the morality system, will they be comparable to Knights of the Old Republic and Jade Empire? Um, with each of our games, the moral system, this is Casey Hudson talking, the moral system is designed to support the core experience of the game. As Knights of the Old Republic was a Star Wars game, we established the light and dark paths for them to choose between to capture that aspect of dealing with the Force. In Jade Empire, players were able to follow the way of the open palm or closed fist, supporting the martial arts setting and providing options that weren't necessarily just good or evil. In Mass Effect, you're the only person that's able to stop the gravest threat to the galaxy, one that could destroy all known civilization. That means that you're justified in smashing through anything that stands in your way, completing your mission at any cost. In other words, you'll be able to do bad things for good reasons. As you make important decisions throughout the game to be compassionate, selfish, or brutal, the entire galaxy is watching you, learning about uh, what the upstart human race is like through your actions. As the game develops, you're actually determining humanity's ultimate role on the galactic stage. So that is mm. the promise, I think, that Mass Effect sets out. It's going to allow yeah. you to make choices as a James Bond-like agent who's kind of can act outside of the law, right? That's yeah, what yeah. specters are. Yeah. It's like they, they basically only answer to the, the Citadel Council. Mm -hmm. But they can, they're given freedom to basically do whatever they want to get the job done. Mm -hmm. And you can choose to be, you know, a, a paragon of uh, like uh, this compassionate 
unselfish like side of humanity mm-hmm. or to be ruthless and cold and to and efficient and get the job done and like whichever path you choose will sort of like show the rest of the galactic civilizations what the potential of humanity <coughs> is yeah that's kind of like where its morality system was going um, i think it has varying levels of success mm-hmm. <laughs> particularly on the renegade route which I want to talk about a little bit when we get into the actual prologue that we played. But that's one of the biggest draws I feel to Mass Effect is yeah. the fact that you can choose in this morality system, this uh, dialogue wheel that they have in, in how you talk with I people. I like that innovation, by the way. Yeah. That's really cool. Thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the dialogue wheel itself, the fact that it's on a wheel and you spin it around and talk yeah. to people. Yeah, so it gives you more options because you could have gone the N64 route and included a ton of C buttons or like yeah. just had tons of buttons or you can just use the stick and it's like yeah. you can just, you can do whatever you want to, you know, and just with the stick. the way that they set it up is the the answers on the top side of the wheel are the paragon, are the paragon yeah. answers, right? And the ones on the bottom side of the wheel are the renegade, cold, ruthless options. No. And then in the center are like the neutral which options. Which is the, which the useless options. Which doesn't count for anything. The and best options, but the ones that aren't useful. <laughs> yeah, so um, I didn't know that when I first played the game. Yes, yes. So I was like, oh, I'm going to pick whatever I want to do, right? Right. And... Um, I was actually upset that he didn't actually say the, the, the thing, thing that, you that I told him to say. Him to say. <laughs> now, this playing the game now, it's it's a whole different experience because it's like I I know what's happening. It's like Paragon, and then and then you can pick the thing like, hey, let's talk about this thing. And it's like I get it now, having already been exposed to it before. But when I first played the game, that was something I really didn't like. I was like, no, mm. I wanted you to say this, and you said that. But I actually really like how they did it. They give you the gist, a very simplified, like, a few words of what he's going to say. But then the dialogue actually kind of flows from there um, with them saying other things than what you selected necessarily. Mm. I like it now. I appreciate it a lot. Very confusing initially. (laughs) Very, very confusing. For sure. But, you know, to whatever degree of success they had or whatever, um, you know, failures that, that you might encounter or, or ways in which it's not as deep as it maybe promises or purports mm-hmm. to be. Um, it is one of the bigger, I feel, draws. And it, it is one element that really makes you feel like you're role-playing, right? Yeah. Because in a lot of RPGs yeah, today, you're not really role-playing. You're just kind of like following an established character. Yes. That's not really that's what... That's mostly the Japanese RPG Yeah, the Japanese RPG influence. Yes. And, yeah. and that's fine. I mean, I love that style of game as well. Yeah. But I, I think that, that that feeling that I really look for, like I was talking about earlier playing video games, I, I tend to prefer this style of RPG that lets you make decisions, that lets you yeah. kind of stand in the shoes of that mm. character and become that character. I think that I prefer that a little bit. Um, now, in, in Japanese RPGs, a lot of times, in order to do that, they'll make it a silent character. And a lot of JRPG yeah. fans, they don't love silent characters. Yes, we've, yes. we've had our discussions about that on the podcast in the past. Of course. But here it's not. Here it's a, it's a, it's a character with you know, yeah. uh, spoken lines and, and things like that. And so it's kind of, you kind of get the best of both. I, I think feel, you do. I think you do. Because you still get a say in what he says, but you're also, it's still very cinematic and it's not yeah. awkward. Yeah. As to like, because even when you're playing like Legend of Zelda and you, you push a button, in your mind, it's like, what did Link actually say? Yeah. 
did he or did he say anything, anything or what right. what is this and yeah. sometimes people are telling you stories and stuff and there's always the question now I of course I don't mind that at all too much but in a game like this you can't have that yeah. in a cinematic this is a movie here you you are this person and you can't just have those simple little yeah. like yes or no yeah. shake your head nod your head to everything and yeah. to me this was yeah. the first time I really played something like, this. like I hadn't played Knights of the Old Republic or Jade Empire or Baldur's Gate before mm. this um, my experience mm, with RPGs yeah. was mostly with Japanese role Japanese games RPGs, yeah. as a kid growing up. And so yeah. this was just like, wow, it, it felt so expansive in a way I had not personally mm. experienced before. And so it, to me, it, it really works despite, you know, the, the hiccups or, or the parts that they maybe could have done better or whatever. With, Anyways, there's a whole problem that comes up with all the permutations, and that's something that, that mm. they write about here too. Just the overwhelming number of choices and how many paths that can create, and how do you limit that <laughs> so yes. that it doesn't get out of control, yeah, and, yeah. It, right? But but limit it without the players feeling like they're being limited. Yeah, yeah. Which is hard to do. <coughs> Another interesting thing that I found in, in sort of researching on this is just like the the sort of like the humble roots this is something I always like to to learn about, like yeah. the the humble beginnings, the humble roots of like how something like. Uh, well, whether it's Final Fantasy, you know, sort of sure. like coming to this place where it's just like, oh, it was this massive success that just came from these like humble beginnings or whatever. I like reading about that. Yeah. And it seemed like, well, especially in the 80s when game development was like a brand new thing. Mm-hmm. It's like they were all dropout college students. Yes, in a garage, just like, somewhere, yeah. just, yeah, yeah. By this time, it's like games are becoming like a worldwide phenomenon, but yeah. most of these guys... They didn't like go to school mm. for game development necessarily, nice. right? Like they just sort of like f- opportunities sort of just opened up and they sort of fell into it. And it was a startup company, and <laughs> I really like reading about stories like that because it's it, it's just kind of cool to see people who were at maybe like at a point in their lives where they really weren't happy. They're feeling like I don't know where my life is going, and then all of a sudden right. they just kind of stumble into this thing and they become these amazing. Creators, yes. right? They find their, you know, their <laughs> niche, I guess. Yeah, they, yeah. They find the thing that they really can do well. So, like, Casey Hudson, for instance, right? Like, he was trying to be a fighter pilot, like, oh, his really? whole life. That's, like, what he wanted to do. And he was failing through college because he yeah. wasn't, like, giving, he wasn't taking it seriously enough. Yeah. And it's like the Air Force, I guess, uh, the way it was written here is that they weren't in the habit of accepting, you know, uh, people who didn't have or people who didn't do very well in school okay. um, who, who were like dropouts or who uh, didn't have like a degree or whatever. I was going to uh, say, but they do want, you've got to be pretty competent if you want to be a fighter pilot. Right, they exactly. The high in IQ, the Air Force, high, it's like, yeah, if you join the Army yeah. or something, it's very different than they, the Air Force. They can find jobs. They're very yeah. particular yeah. about it's Air Force. For the pilots, specifically yes. for the pilots, yes. So they, yeah. they want people who are very competent. Anyways. Yes. He, he, he grew up watching Top Gun, so he like, wanted <laughs> to be a fighter pilot, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Another really interesting anecdote, I just, I just love this, is uh, for his like, elementary school uh, like science fair, mm-hmm. where everyone else is making the volcanoes and yes. know, the, the typical Sodium things you see. or the he, baking soda. He actually, vinegar. and this would have been in the 80s, so this is like really early on with computers. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people understood computers at the time. He wrote a little program that would, he, would, he would type the word run, and it would do this little bird animation, right? Oh, and cool. so, like, he did that by himself as, like, an, an eight-year-old or something like that, right? Sweet. And And the, the science fair judges were like, Casey, like, tell us the truth. Did your dad help you with this? 
and he was so pissed yeah. that he deleted his program and he oh. rewrote the whole thing right there with them watching oh, to really? prove that he did it himself. That's and funny. he walked away with like the first prize or whatever, right? <laughs> so that's <laughs> the kind of guy he was. He, he's very ambitious, he's yeah. very like driven. Um, but for whatever reason, he wasn't uh, taking school that seriously. So he came to this place where he wasn't sure what he wanted to do with his life. Yeah, I got a quote from him here. He says, there's a false confidence that you have when you think you can't lose. You don't realize what you have and what you're playing for. Um, so he started taking jobs, convenience stores, and programming software for like an irrigation company, and mm. you know all these little things he was doing. But he was encouraged to go back to school by his parents and his girlfriend. He ended up finishing his degree. But then at that time, the Air Force was—they um, put a freeze on hiring. So he's like, "Oh, I finally like got mm. like back on track to be in the Air Force, but now they they won't take me." So he's like, "I don't know what to do." And then he heard on the nightly news about this new video game company called Bioware that mm. was hiring. And he's like, you know, I'll go check that out. And that set him on the path to being one of the greatest freaking video game directors ever, right? <laughs> wow. Um, so he's a fascinating guy. Um, also, I don't want to put like, you know, I talk about, say, you know, in my research on Final Fantasy games, like how important Sakaguchi was mm. to the, what I felt was the spirit of yeah. those older titles and how they've changed since he's left. Um, Bioware's, their reputation has taken a sharp nosedive in recent years. Yeah, I have some stuff to say about that, but <laughs> yeah. Yes, Particularly with Mass Effect Andromeda and then yes. Anthem, which yes, came Anthem. after that. Which I think Hudson directed Anthem. Is that well, right? he started. Okay, and Drew Carpition wrote for Anthem as well. Well, a little bit, but like <laughs> they were kind of, because they left the company and came back and yes, they left again. they left, yes, yes, yes. Between the years like 2013 and 2018, Something like they that, came yeah. in and out twice. Mm-hmm. So there was, some, and the, the original guys who founded the company, they've left now into what they call their third careers. They're all off doing other things now. Okay. So They cashed out. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the way that he has been described by, you know, anonymous, um, you know, team members at Bioware over the years who, they, they kind of have described how the company changed after, like, Hudson left, right? Um, it says, Bioware veterans like to describe Casey Hudson's Mass Effect team as the Enterprise from Star Trek. Um, they all did what the captain said and they were all laser focused on a single determination. By comparison, they called the Dragon Age team a pirate ship meandering from port to port until it reached its final destination. Now the Enterprise no longer had its Jean-Luc Picard um, Mm -hmm. when he left, right? So that's the way he was kind of viewed or seen as like a a Captain Jean-Luc Picard in in, in Bioware. And so when he left, it, it, he, he felt like he was leaving it in a really good place because Anthem mm. was starting to go into production. And, um, but it started really falling apart mm. after he left. <laughs> and like, uh, there's been a lot of complaints from the company about like being like the, the, the crunch and the overwork. And yes, yes. the games have not been good and there's been a lot of problems. And so that's what Casey Hudson sort of represented in his time at Bioware. And he's no longer there anymore. And yeah. He's what made Knights of the Republic and Mass Effect and things so amazing. Right? So good. So there's this uh, this weird thing that happens 
when, like when Squaresoft made Final Fantasy VII, mm-hmm. and the investors and yes. the executives, and it's they're a, all like, our next cycle. game, could, and I, I see this a lot with the company I work at too. It's like, you break a goal, you sell a ton of a product, and it's like, sweet. What are we going to do next now year? Now we got to go. And you have to Beyond. further it. You have to say, <laughs> we're going to do even better next year. And, yeah. and in some ways, it's like, okay, that's just an optimistic goal that the CEO or that the money people are like, we want this to keep going. Let's capture that momentum and keep mm-hmm. going, right? Keep it going. And then you get Square Enix, which is just trying to make Final Fantasy VII again over and over and over. They're just trying to recreate that success. that success. And it's like... How often would a game, that, a company that makes really good games have one breakout, killer, awesome game and then is okay with coming back down and just doing what they were doing, right? Yeah. That never happens. That can't happen. Because as soon as it jumps up like this, if you don't meet it with your goals, the investors are going to say, well, I'm out now, yeah. right? Because this is a good time to sell. If you're not going to promise me that you can keep going yes. beyond this, then, then why invest? Why would I keep my you money can't in this make company? Any money exactly. As an investor. And so the and the investors pull their money, and then you can't even make these low games anymore, because who's going to invest in your company? It's like they yeah. clearly have no ambition, right? Yeah. So this inevitably happens. It's like the success of a huge smashing hit, like Final Fantasy had been successful, like yeah. Knights of the Old Republic. Mm-hmm. But then you do a thing that's original and new and different and Final Fantasy VII or Mass Effect and everything goes up and it's just like, wow. And it kills the company. It destroys the company. Yeah. That level of success is a company destroyer. I have literally seen that happen. Of so many with times. With every single intellectual property I've yeah. ever liked in my entire life outside of maybe Zelda and Mario. That is incredible. <laughs> yes, you're right. And Nintendo is crazy because they don't let these people go. Like yeah. if I look, based on what you just told me, yeah. And I've, I've looked into it as well. But you let Hudson, Casey Hudson, right? Yeah. What, what company would be like, oh, you want to leave the company? Okay. <laughs> after what he did, yeah. after the, the lengths that he went through, after the success he brought you, to be like, to not do everything in your power to keep him yeah. in your company. And a lot of Pay times, him seven figures a year. I don't freaking care. A lot you of times, need him. Yeah. And, and I think at some point, a lot of, basically Nintendo's the only one that's like, we're going to keep you no matter what. Every other company is like, bye, yeah. and we'll do it again without you. And then they can't do it. Well, a lot of times it's the, it's the culture, the corporate culture, yeah. that comes in light of the success you're talking about. Yeah. Once something breaks out, it's like, okay, as a company, we can go public and make all this mm-hmm. money and just get, grab these investors and really expand and grow yeah. as a company. But then and you have it, to. it develops a corporate culture yeah. where the people at the top have no clue whatsoever what makes good entertainment and good art. They know what makes they good They start money. making yeah, yeah. the decisions. Yes. And the artists say, I hate this culture. I'm out. Mm-hmm. I can't make good art like this. Yeah, yeah. That's the cycle. It's yep. like, it's a startup. It's like made by a bunch of passionate people, this company. And then they have a lightning in the bottle type success. Bam. Yeah. Here we are. We arrived on the scene. And then yeah. all the money people come in and they take it over. They literally yeah. pay. They buy it and they take it over. And they think because they bought it, they can choose. Ev- they, they can make all the decisions. Yep. And they just have no idea how, or how to make good art. 
And so then all the artists become disenfranchised with the new corporate culture and they peace out and then over the thing just becomes garbage over. that's milked for yes. years and years and years. Yes, that is yes. literally the cycle of every <laughs> intellectual property I can think of <laughs> outside of some of those Nintendo properties. Um, so some of the other uh, developers here, some of their background, uh, Preston Watamniak was a, a garbage man no before sick. he joined Bioware. Nice, that's good, that's good. <laughs> uh, so he had a degree in political science, but he was just a garbage man until he was 30 years old. And then he was like, am I going to be a garbage man forever? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> and so he's like yeah, having his funny. friends keep an eye out for job openings. And then he was told about this company that makes uh, this D&D game called Baldur's Gate. He was a big D&D player. So mm -hmm. he was like, oh man, what do I got to do? Like, I love D&D. How do I become a part of that company, right? So, you know, basically the, the hiring process there was hey, what kind of games are you into? And, and he would just <laughs> spill about his love of D&D. &D. It's like, you're hired. You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> that's right? so funny, man. <laughs> so I so that's that. how he ended up joining. Drew Carpishan, the writer, right? He was a furniture truck driver. No way. So he would deliver furniture. How did these people, this is the most <laughs> unlikely band I know, of it's like so cool, though. rogue, you know, people. It's so cool, though, because like, really cool. I think there are a lot of people out there who might who are in that position at some point in their life like man i studied this but like i can't get a job in that you know i wasted yes, my poli degree or philosophy or yeah English. it's like so what am i going to do with my life you know yeah it's like and i love how these yep. startup companies that are, yeah you know maybe they they can't go out and get the most competitive yes you know team members the people who have a, a master's degree in the <laughs> thing it's like no yeah. we gotta we gotta fly under the radar but like there are still so many creative people out there who you just would never know. People driving furniture trucks and garbage trucks, <laughs> trying to get into the Air Force and not being able to get in there, yeah. right? Failing their way out of school. Like these people have this, have Mass Effect in their brains. Yeah, 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 somewhere. And it's just like if, if someone can just grab that talent together, yeah. the right people, like you don't have to be some master's degree freaking programmer right, or don't. something like that. You just got to find the right group and yeah. get together and, and Bioware was able to pull that off and I just freaking love that about sort of the humble roots of, of Bioware's story. That is very cool. That is very cool. Um, Drew Carpishan uh, ended up writing several novels that were tie-ins to the games. That, yeah, I've that never read those. So, um, I, I, I read um, the first, the, it's, it's a prequel story to Mass Effect called Mass Effect Revelation. Mm. And that's basically the story of, he's Captain Anderson in Mass Effect <coughs> Anderson, 1, yeah, yeah. but at the time he was Commander Anderson, so it's several mm. years before. Mm. And it's sort of his story about how he came in contact with Saren, who's a, a Turian Spectre that w we get to know. Yeah. He's the villain of Mass Effect yes. 1. So it's a, it's a story about how he met him mm. for the first time. It's pretty good, it's pretty well written. But um, he also wrote um, a tie-in for Baldur's Gate 2, um, Sh uh, Throne of Baal. And I, I thought this was really interesting. Um, his thoughts on like why that particular novel was not received as well as mm. some of the others he wrote as tie-ins to Star Wars and uh, Mass Effect and some of the other things. Okay. Um, so uh, his first significant contribution to Bioware was Throne of Ball, which is the expansion on Baldur Gate 2. Um, he worked as a writer on Neverwinter Nights and Jade Empire, became the lead writer for Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic and Mass Effect. Baldur's Gate 2 Throne of Ball, right? The, the, the tie-in story. Basically, it's based 
on the story of the video game. So it's just like a novel. You know they do that for a movie sometimes. Like, yes. <coughs> like they um, just rewrite the story. It was one yeah, of my favorite books a as a kid. There was a little twenty-page Jurassic Park, but it, okay, Jurassic Park is funny. That is actually a book, but I mean, <laughs> it, it was, was based first, on the movie. But the movie novelization, yeah. yeah. In the middle, it had some screenshots because I wasn't allowed. You, you mentioned you were allowed to watch Jurassic Park. <laughs> I was not allowed to watch Jurassic Park. I had this little book <laughs> Too that was based that. on the movie that I could read the book and look at the pictures. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, they used to so, do that. Yeah, I guess like they still do. I think my brother had um, the novelization for Phantom Menace. Oh yeah, the Star Wars, yeah. they do all those, yeah. So they had just basically the movie in a novel form. In a book form. They just hire a guy to write a novel for it. Yeah, they use the script. That's basically just... what he did for Baldur's Gate 2 Throne of Ball. Hmm. Um, he, he wrote this on his website. Yeah, right? those aren't as interesting, especially if you can just play the game. Yeah, because he wrote on his website, I believe the problem with the whole Baldur's Gate trilogy that he wrote, the novels, mm-hmm. was that the novels were based directly on the story of the Bioware computer games, which I also worked on, Basing novels directly on Bioware games is difficult. The games allow players to create their own main character, but in the book, we have to select a character for you. Players could be male, female, elf, dwarf, wizards, thieves, but in the book, they're locked into a male human fighter. That is true. Yeah, yeah. that that makes it difficult. Obviously, this makes it hard for them to identify with the main character. In the game, up to a dozen different side characters could join with the player and share their adventures. In the book, we had to select three or four side characters at most. And inevitably, we left out characters players liked. One more problem, the game was 30 hours long and had over 500,000 words of dialogue. 500? (laughs) Wait, what? Even more than Mass Effect? That's insane. Condensing all that into an 80,000-word novel is bound to leave players feeling let down. As if all that wasn't bad enough, the book had four different editors as Wizards of the Coast was going through a shakeup at the time, and I'm sad to say that this is reflected in the quality of the novel. As a writer, you're too close to your own work to effectively edit it. You need a good editor to push your work to the final level of quality, and that didn't happen with Throne of Ball. I still don't think it's a bad book. It does give a deeper uh, look at all the various villains players will encounter in the world of Throne of Ball but the novel never became what I had hoped it would. And this is why on Mass Effect, he didn't ever write novelizations of the direct game stories. So yeah. Revelation smart. is a prequel story, yeah, and the others are kind of like in character. between the games. Yeah, smart. Right? So that's, that's why I think that they work much better. And I definitely recommend reading Mass Effect Revelation if you want to learn yeah. more about Anderson who is sort of a side character in Mass Effect 1. Mm-hmm. He's like a mentor to Shepard, mm-hmm. but um, his past is really like fleshed out. They do a really good job too of building up to, like Mass Effect, like knowing where to start in such like an enormous sort of like expansive universe like this, like Mm -hmm. what point do we start our story at? And how much of all this stuff that happened before are we then going to have to try to explain to catch people up? It's tough. And if you read Revelation, it does a good job of showing how humanity became a part mm. of this galactic civilization, how they got in, uh, involved in the first contact war with the Turians, like mm. all these things that lead up to Mass Effect 1's first shot of Shepard looking out the window as they like go to the mass relay and they go to this mission on Eden yeah. Prime. It's like a lot of stuff to catch you up on. I think reading the novel is a good way of doing that. Cool. Um, so I recommend it uh, to anyone who wants to read it. It's really, uh, it's pretty good. Okay, um, last thing I kind of want to touch on here before we jump into the, the prologue of the game itself 
is that the voice talent for this game is is excellent. It's very good. And it was really yeah. important. And this was uh, another one of the big draws to the game that made it yeah. feel cinematic to me when I first played it, right? Was the performances of the actors. And this was something that was very important to Casey Hudson. It was like, well, we have yeah. to make the digital actors, the virtual actors, convincing. They've yes. got to be convincing. We yeah. get to see emotion in their face. Yeah. We need great voice talent. Otherwise, this story won't work. Right. And they really pulled it off. There's some big names. Um, uh, so uh, I'm not going to do this just because we're a little bit strapped for time. But again, I, I, I recommend that um, the hours leading up to Mass Effect, written by oh, Jeff Keeley, uh, where it talks about Caroline Livingstone, who was um, like a really struggling actress in in Canada, who was mm. just barely making it by, um, you know, trying to take care of her son and things like that. You know, doing plays here and there, little small time shows. Yeah, she ended up kind of finding her way into an audition, you know, for, for Bioware. And mm. she became their, um, their casting director. Oh, nice. And um, the, the team she put together for Mass yeah. Effect w- was yeah. really impressive. So they have, like, Keith David, who does the voice of Anderson. He's had a prolific career. Well, is he the Allstate guy? No, but he sounds like him. <laughs> It yeah. sounds but he just does, like he it. does sound a lot like the, yeah, yeah. the Allstate guy, right? Like, he's got yeah, a good different, radio different voice. But uh, Keith David has done a ton of, um, just, he's, he's lended his voice to a ton of things. Cool. Um, you got Seth Green. Seth Green. Who plays Joker, the, the pilot, yeah, yeah. right? He's um, been in a ton of stuff. Jennifer Hale does the voice of female Shepard. Okay. And she is a v- extremely famous voice actress. Done mm. voices for just tons and tons of movies and cartoons and games and oh, cool. all kinds of stuff. She, her, her career after Mass Effect has just been amazing. She's really great. You have Ali Hillis, who plays uh, Liara Sony in, in Mass Effect, but oh. um, she's also the voice of Lightning in Final Fantasy XIII. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, nice. So, you know, our, our viewers will recognize her voice from that. Yeah. Um, you also have Marina Sirtis, who uh, plays Matriarch Benezia in Mass Effect, but she was Counselor Troy on Star Trek The Next Generation, one of oh, the main really? characters there. So they really went out of their wow. way to hire some like really great uh, voice talent for, nice. for Mass Effect. And it's, it, it's I mean, it's, it's such an integral part of selling the drama, yeah. the dramatic gravitas, the, the, the stakes of the story, the interpersonal relationships, because you can, you can uh, you know, th- you, there are romanceable characters in the game. Right? Oh yeah, that's and really, so, um, yeah, that can be in very game, awkward, especially if the acting is bad. <laughs> if the acting it's, is bad, yeah, and it's it's really great. I mean, it's 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 so nice because we play so many JRPGs for the channel. Yeah, and you know we've talked about the reasons why uh, acting in Japanese role playing games or just uh, anime and things like that are so maybe like overstated or over the top. Yeah, or it's, exaggerated. Very it's It's kind of part of the way that Japanese theater developed. Which is very different from how Kabuki. Western, yes, yes. how yeah. Western theater developed, oh, right? Way different. So yeah. there's there's reasons why, and it's not like it's it's just a different flavor. It's, it's a, a different style. Thing. There's nothing yeah. wrong with it, mm-hmm. but it's it's really nice. I felt as I was sitting down to play this after being just game after game doing JRPG, 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 right, and like people pushing me to play, say like the new Tales of game. Um, Tales oh, of Arise, yeah. I think. Have you and done that? Looking at, I have not, but okay. I've been looking into that and watching nice. cutscenes. And there's yeah, just a, there's cool. just a flavor 
to anime and Japanese RPGs in terms yeah. of the vocal performances. Oh yes. To nice. where when I when I stepped it's in, it's less was, subtle. Yeah, when I was playing this, I just felt like it was a pa palate cleanser in a way. Yeah, that's good. That's it just nice. felt like oh yeah. my gosh, it feels so grounded and convincing and just like real to me. Yeah. It's it's mm. this subtlety in the performances. There's and, and I just love that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so nice. I, I I I think that they did an amazing job with that. And that I, I so I would say that. The morality system, uh, the the sort of like getting lost, the exploration aspect, um, uh, the galaxy map, and, and the music, and and the the vocal performances, the voice cast, these things are what really make Mass Effect special, particularly yeah, for I the agree. time. It's like there are games that have come out. Two thousand seven. I mean, I know that's a long time ago. Some of the techniques that they use, like, like you'll see a lot of repeating animations, because there's almost like a pre not procedural generation. That's not quite the right term, mm. but they, there's a, a technique behind how they animate just the normal conversations, where you'll see a lot of <laughs> repeats of yes. certain like yes, 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 animations and things like that. That. I don't mind those as much. You see, you see it more now that we've then had you like would have. yeah, yeah. The Witcher Three, That's for true. instance, has just like taken these techniques to a whole new level. Yeah. In terms of making convincing animations over so many spoken lines, I mean, hundreds mm. of thousands of spoken lines. How can you make it look convincing and animated? Obviously, Mass Effect was one of the first games to really pioneer some of these techniques. Yeah. But to me. It still really works, and you know the way that the characters move—they blink their eyes, their facial animations. It's just—it's all very convincing and paired with um, the great voice talent. It's—it's—it still holds up, in my opinion. I, w I was concerned that because I haven't played Mass Effect in a while, I was concerned <laughs> that I was going to sit up. down. And I was like, "Ah, oh, this game feels stiff. It feels dated," no, no. and it does. Well, to the, some the visuals do, but but I I think in other in all the other. Regards, yeah, it still holds. It's up. It's still great. I got to the end of this prologue, which we're yeah, yeah. transitioning into now. Let's segue over to that. And I was, I was a little bit nervous yeah, yeah. that I was like, oh, maybe this isn't going to be good as I remember. Are we really <laughs> going to do a podcast on this? I'm going to like criticize it so much, which I'm not afraid to do if it of happens. Course, of course, but I just felt like, oh man, I'm so stoked to play this yeah, game yeah. once we got to the end of it. And I'm doing four playthroughs, so I'm doing a, <clears throat> a Paragon and Renegade path for the male shepherd. I'm doing a probably going to be a paragon path for the default female shepherd. So mm -hmm. all, those are all default phases. But then I'm doing a stream for patrons where I kind of let them customize the character and make the choices. And that ended up being another female custom character. So I'm doing four different playthroughs and I'm just exploring it and like trying choices I haven't That's tried before, um, classes I haven't played before. And I'm just very, after the prologue, I'm hooked. Like yeah. I feel as excited and um, I feel it's as good as I remembered it, and um, it, it really still holds up for me. That's good. That's <clears throat> good. I've been very pleased in that regard as well. Yeah. So, uh, one thing I think I want to do moving forward, this was a suggestion from, from one of our patrons. Um, uh, one thing that he really liked about, say, some of the retrospectives and reviews was mm. the sections where I would do a summary of the story, right? I've been doing that a little bit less in recent times to avoid spoilers and things of that nature. Ah, uh, um, yeah, yeah. But rather than us sort of like meandering through, summarizing it, and then like getting on tangents and things, he was like, what if you did just a, a, like a written summary in the style of yeah. those old retrospectives, and then you can jump in and like analyze 
at P4P. If you want to write a summary of I did. every so week. I'm going to try to do that and uh, see if okay. people like it. No, if that, they, if people they will like it. People will like it. That's <laughs> your problem. People are going to love it, and you're going to get overwhelmed playing the game four times and having to write. <laughs> if, they, if they like it, I'll keep doing it. If they don't, if they liked the way we handled, say, Xenogears, we'll yeah. do it that way. But it's just, gotcha, I'm always gotcha, trying to look gotcha. for ways to improve the show and try different stuff out. Yes, you are. So, um, but before I get into um, that summary, mm. I think it's important to do, because I was trying to, in my attempt to write it, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much like stuff that you need to know for, if I'm going to make a mention of the Protheans, <laughs> you have to know who the Protheans are. <laughs> yes, yes, there, there are inevitably right. tangents. No matter so, how we do it, there will inevitably be so tangents. So I want to do just a little bit of a build-up of the history leading up to how Kay. we got to the point where the game starts. So essentially, um, Earth, uh, uh, humanity has a colony on Mars. They, they establish a colony on Mars. And in doing so, they discover this, like, uh, this, these ruins, this hidden facility yeah. on the planet that was from an ancient alien race who they named the Protheans. Mm. Um, who had been essentially watching the evolution of humanity. They were kind of like keeping, keeping an eye on us in our very primordial ape-like state, right? Yeah. Like kind of like tracking our evolution or whatever, right? Um, the, the evidence suggests that 50,000 years ago, the Protheans mysteriously disappeared. And mm. they left behind all of this technology and these relics um, that essentially humanity uh, finds it on Mars and that leads them to right on like near the the, the very outskirts of the solar system there's a, a, a mass relay mm. which is this uh, kind of like giant uh, it looks engine. like the halo sword yeah right? yeah yeah you go through it and like <laughs> and the way that it works is I don't know how much into the weeds I want to get into this yet because we can look through like the data logs and things like that later if we want to like get into the lore of it yeah. but um, a lot of the technology that, that the Protheans, uh, it was based on using dark energy. There's a, mm -hmm. a big like dark energy aspect to how it all works. Okay. So it's like, it, it sort of phases, it, 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 it's, it's essentially, it's not like you're going really fast. <laughs> it like phases you <laughs> using dark energy and just like instantly teleports you to another mass relay across the galaxy. Hmm. Right, so they discover this technology that allows them to start jumping yeah. instantaneously, like way, way across the galaxy. So faster than light travel, right? Yes, yes, yes. So as they're experimenting with that and expanding to all these different planets and starting these colonies all over the place, they run into their first alien encounter with the Turian hierarchy, is what they're called, mm -hmm. their government. And uh, it's a very, very bad first meeting. It leads to them sort of like destroying the scouts that came through. And then humanity arrives with like a ton of warships and they just kill all of those <laughs> like sentry Jeez. ships. And there's a big war that is oh about to break out called the First Contact War. Yes, yes. Between the humans and the Turians. And this is when the other Citadel Council races, the Asari and the Salarians, they step in and they mediate so that war does not break out between the Turians and the humans. Mm -hmm. And they accept humanity into the galactic civilization sort of slowly over time. And basically, humanity is extremely aggressive, like mm -hmm. extremely aggressive in their expansion. And they start having a level of influence in the economy of this 
uh, citadel, a citadel space, like in the in the economy of the galactic civilization, that is just like starting to spread at a pace that makes everyone else very nervous. It's like, hmm, who are these humans? What are the what right. are, what is what are their ultimate goals? They're a very aggressive race. They're a very competitive race. Anyways, um, it's it's at a point where there are three at the at the current time there are three races who are represented in like the highest form of government, the Citadel Council. You have the Turians, the Asari, and the Salarians. Mm. Humans want to be represented on that council. They want an ambassador to be on that council. Yes. They also want a soldier to be in uh, uh, these, it, it's, it's, uh, it's like an elite special agent um, kind of like core called the Spectres. Spectres. And they... I, I like that you made the... Um, Parallel to James Bond yes, before because that's exactly Spectre, what they are. Yes, that's yes. what Casey Hudson wanted the Spectres to be. Uh, but the word Spectre is very yeah. much a James Cause, Bond because of yeah the thing. movie Spectre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah, so these are agents who basically they their entire goal is to protect the uh, the interests of the of this galactic civilization yeah, yeah. Um, to keep the peace. To, but they can do essentially anything they want to right. to those ends. I think they just have to justify it. Yeah. Afterwards. Yeah. To the and, and they they basically <laughs> only report to the council, yes. and they can use whatever methods they need in order to protect those interests. Right. Right. Humanity wants a human specter, and they want a human ambassador on the council. That's where we're at currently, as we open up Mass Effect. Right. Mm. So, here is the summary of what we played this week. The story begins as our lead protagonist, Commander Shepard walks onto the bridge of the SSV Normandy, a newly commissioned, state-of-the-art, deep-scout, stealth frigate, and the most advanced infiltration starship in the galaxy. It's the product of a joint venture between the Human Systems Alliance and the Turian Hierarchy, and its current mission is a shakedown run on a human colony world called Eden Prime to test its stealth systems. However, many of the Normandy's crew are skeptical of this, because of how seriously the captain seems to be taking the mission, in addition to the fact that a Turian specter named Nihilus, an elite special agent of the Citadel Council, has come aboard to observe the mission. When Commander Shepard is summoned by the captain for briefing, he reveals their true purpose for being there. A Prothean beacon has been unearthed, which could potentially provide a vast well of scientific knowledge that would result in massive technological leaps for the Alliance and other Citadel races. In order to increase their standing with the Citadel Council, the Alliance has agreed to hand over the beacon, hoping that a human ambassador will be considered for a position on the Council, as well as a human soldier for the Spectres. Nihilus, the Turian Spectre, has been assigned to observe Shepard in action, having submitted the commander's name as a candidate. Just as the briefing comes to an end, Joker alerts the captain that a distress signal has been transmitted from Eden Prime. It's a video recording that shows the colony under attack from an unknown mothership. Shepard and his team rush in to repel the attack, fighting their way toward the spaceport where the beacon is being held. Along the way, one member of the team, Corporal Jenkins, is killed, and Ashley Williams, who was separated from her squad, joins with Shepard. It's then revealed that Saren, another Turian Spectre, was the one responsible for the attack and is leading an army of Geth, a synthetic life form created hundreds of years ago who disappeared beyond the Citadel space. Saren betrays and murders Nihilus, and Shepard arrives only just in time to secure the beacon before it can be taken away by the Geth. 
Shepard approaches the beacon to save one of his squad mates, who appears to be entranced and drawn in by it, only to witness a terrible vision of death and destruction, a warning of what is to come. Shepard then wakes up in the Normandy's sickbay, where he's debriefed by Captain Anderson and made aware of how bad this could look to the Citadel Council. Shepard is told that he or she, depending on your choice, will have to make a full report and that Anderson will give his full support. Normandy then sets a course for the Citadel where Shepard's future will be decided. So that is the prologue, the introductory, the introductory sequence of Mass Effect's story. Um, I want to pass it to you because I've been talking a lot. How did you feel about this as like a, a hook for the story? I think it was quite good. Um, so at the very, very beginning, it, it's, it's full of the awe-inspiring wonder as the ship goes through, and you don't really know how any of this stuff works, and you're yeah. just seeing these big you know, um, spaceships and stuff. But once the, once the gameplay actually starts and you get to Eden Prime, essentially, um, like, it's pretty hectic yeah. and it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I know on the ship it was, <coughs> it was fun to go around and um, talk to everybody and get everybody's take on everyone's nervous about what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody knows what, that something weird is happening here, but they don't know exactly why and... Um, I thought it was really well done because it's like a, it's a little more subtle. It's not yeah. so overt. You're talking to everyone. Everyone's talking about it, but you don't have to talk to anyone really, yeah. except for Anderson at one point, or um, you go into the back part and you talk to uh, Nihilus, Nihilus, yeah. uh, for a little bit. But you you just kind of hear people talking as you're coming and going, and it feels very involved. It feels mm-hmm. very cool. Um, and it's less like direct, although it can be as direct as you want it to be. <laughs> sure. And that's the cool part about this game, just in general. Um, uh, but then the the real hook being Eden Prime and what happens there. Yeah. Um, I I did feel a little bit because I don't love the gameplay <laughs> like at all. I, I really, are you, are you I really playing like the old version or like the new older. legendary? Older. Oh, okay. No, not not new at all. So the new version is lots more. <laughs> oh, but, but I know. But even still. Well, okay, I guess I'd have to play it then. I'd have to, like, check it out and yeah. see how it goes. See how Maybe goes. I can get you um, my, like, login on Steam, oh. and you can just, like, download it and try it out just to see the difference in how it feels to play. Because I'd be interested to see if you like the new one better yeah. in that regard. But. That sounds good. Because <laughs> um, I think, depending on which version you're playing, like, the PC version, you got to use, like, mouse and keyboard. You can, like, do button um, assignments yeah. to it, but it's, like, kind of clumsy. It doesn't, yes. it doesn't allow you to just plug in a controller like most games on Steam, it just, mm-hmm. there's a controller option. You yeah. have to like bind them manually using third-party software. And well, um, that could be the problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, um, it, it's, it's just really touchy, and then you have to shoot things a lot of times before they die. Yeah. Just a lot. And the that's Halo. one of the things I didn't like about Halo yeah. that I did like about Call of Duty. It's like, yeah. you don't shoot people as much before <laughs> they die. With, with um, you know, with... Um, Mass Effect, you're you're going there, and I guess everyone has like a shield or something. You go yeah, like, they have kinetic shield. You just shoot yeah. through the shield, and then you can get, and then you get. The they actually explain that still, in the novel, the the Revelation novel. They explain all the technology behind the kinetic shields and the little pellets that they use in their guns. And it's oh, pretty cool. Yeah. Read it; it's pretty cool. Oh, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, um, but so it's it's a little clunky, but it's kind of cool how it kind of guides you towards places to hide behind, and the cover aspect is pretty good. And you kind of you can aim before you like. 
before you before like, you turn. go out. Yep. Now, when it's I key. first played this game, I didn't do that because yeah. I didn't know. I just didn't get how the game works yeah. at all, and I was just kind of going around, and I would basically just strife left and strife, <laughs> strife, strafe, left, and left and right. right going back and forth, and I wouldn't use the thing. If I had to go left a little, I'd move my whole character over left. <laughs> Anyways, it was just very clunky. So yeah. it's it's not so bad there, but it's still, it's just not the type of gameplay that I enjoy playing. Yeah. Um, but um, the characters are wonderful. Like, even the little side characters that you meet along the way. Like, they're really, really good. Like, the guy mm-hmm. who fell asleep behind the crates yep. and stuff. And it's like, well-written, interesting, totally believable, completely yeah. realistic type of situation. Yeah. Um, and I really like Cthulhu, the big, I call it Cthulhu. The big mothership. The big yeah. thing with tentacles. I love how it's they freeze Cthulhu. on that in, in the, when Anderson first gets the, the call from Joker. Yes, and, and it stops. And he's like, he's right like go there. back and freeze at whatever point, and they freeze on it. And it, they take a real long beat yes. for them all looking at it and just being like, what, what is this? Is that? And it makes the sound, too. This yeah. Like mm-hmm. this siren kind of sound. Really mysterious. So, so mysterious. And so the the intrigue, I thought it was a very good hook, very good hook. Yeah. And then you're wondering what this thing is, the the, the ancient obelisk that they find that, mm. and just with Nihilus, one thing I, I typically like Nihilus dies. Yeah. Because of Saren. Saren kills him. Yeah. But, Shoots him in the back. Um, I wonder how the this game would go if you didn't know, if you didn't see that all happen. Oh, if they didn't show that scene. Yeah, if it wasn't so explicit, Saren's the bad guy, you know? Yeah. If it was like a little more questionable. It's pretty interesting because what like, happened? Chrissy was watching me as I was playing it for patrons, and mm-hmm. she was expecting Nihilus was going to be double crossing. Because he, he seems somehow. pretty suspicious, right? right? Yes. It's like, oh, I'm going ahead. I don't need to go with you. Yes, kind of yes. Thing, right? I got other stuff. That's to what do. she was expecting. And, and then, like, um, the assistant guy who's like crazy. Mm-hmm. Right, like he's like, oh, the Turian prophet. Yes, that him. guy. Yes, and yes, blah yes. blah blah blah. Right, and she was like, oh, Nihilus. Something's up with Nihilus, but then he just dies like immediately. Right, after I that. know. It's like, <laughs> oh crap, dang it. What was up with Nihilus? You'll yeah. never know. We'll never know. So, but the character stuff was phenomenal, and then the world building, just the immersion, was was so 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 well done. Um, this serves as a very good hook because the game does slow down a bit as you get to the Citadel. Yeah. Before you then go to the right, you can go wherever you want portion of the right, game. Right, right, right. Which I, I didn't realize it takes that long before you can actually go somewhere yeah. that you want to go. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's going to be a while. The Citadel is a pretty long sequence. Yeah, yeah. A there's lot a lot to do, to do there. there. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny because the game is what the game is. You won't really even get to until until a little bit later in terms yeah. of like the exploration and stuff. Because right. you couldn't really go very many places on Eden Prime. It was pretty linear. It's pretty linear. They just guide it's you through a little It's a tutorial section. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Um, but yeah, the characters and the immersion, just, just phenomenal off the charts, very good. Yeah. So I really liked even like the character creator, like, just like the presentation for it. Because it's, it's yeah, like you're yeah, logging yeah. into your account. Yes, yeah, it feels <laughs> that way. like your Alliance military account. Yes. And it's like if you just choose the default shepherd that they build for you, just male shepherd soldier, or yeah. female shepherd soldier with the default face, it's like, oh, okay, I did, um, log in successful, whatever, yeah. and you kind of go through that. Did I'm you create a I'm character? a spacer. Spacer, okay. Yeah. Partly because I was like, what is Did you customize the face? Uh, No, no. No, I'm so bad at that. In any game that lets me do it, other than um, Nintendo hit on something with their me thing, because it's so simple. It doesn't take long to make something. It's hard to make someone look bad with that. (laughs) I mean, you can make them look funny, I guess, but everything looks, you know, they they limit what you can do. With the 3DS, they even ended up doing a thing where you could take a picture of your own face, and it would try to to create one for you. And then you just adjust it, because it's not always great when it does that. Right. But I, I don't 
spend because I'd spend so much time. I've done this in the past. Remember, like <laughs> NBA Two K Ten yeah, or something. Yeah, forever. you spend forever to like get it, and then it's like you get it to where you think it's good, right? Then you walk yeah. away, you come back, and you're it like, looks "This looks so, bad. so horrible. It looks nothing like me or anyone." <laughs> so. That's, yeah, I that's, don't even bother with that stuff anymore. That's my experience in particular with Mass Effect's character creation. Yeah. I don't think it's very well, good. And I had heard, um, I've never actually experimented with Mass Effect's character creator. Yeah. And I've also never played as a female shepherd. I just kind of, yeah. I just go, gloss over that part because I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. But um, I, ha- I have heard that the uh, animations are not great if you customize it too much, right? Yes, because it, the, the, it's, I've a, it's seen a, videos it's sort on of YouTube. like a blanket. <laughs> Animation, yes. But if your facial features are yeah, if your wacky, eyes are wider, it can or look up or really or... weird when they talk. Yes. And that's always been my experience: is I'll create a character and I think it looks really cool. Yeah. And yeah. then he starts talking, and, and it's like he looks janky. His tongue and teeth <laughs> he looks are terrible. Weird. Yes, yes. <laughs> he looks awful, Landon, I'm, I think Landon showed me several <laughs> moments where weird stuff was going on, and I was like, yeah. "Holy crap, dude!" <laughs> yeah. It's it's freaking crazy, but yeah. Um, on this playthrough, this was the first time, because, again, Chrissy was kind of doing it over um, yeah. uh, online as I'm streaming it. Mm-hmm. She, that was the first time we created a female shepherd that I felt looked better than the default. Yeah, that's crazy. Really I've never heard of worked. that for Mass Effect. And it, it, it's like all the animations look good. The yeah. voice matches with the face. Wow. It was like, wow, okay, like, that's legit. So that's the first time it's ever happened. That's hard, dude. Usually I don't do that. See, Usually that's I why just I, go with the default. I just give up. I don't even try. Yeah. So anyways, but if you choose to customize the character, it's like, um, you know, I actually think I wrote it down. It's like, welcome to the Alliance Military Database. Classified information requested. Establishing secure connection. Secure connection confirmed. Please log in to access your profile. Warning, data corruption detected. Please reconstruct profile. So it's I like you're that. starting That's over great. again. That's it's great. just a really nice <laughs> presentation touch yeah, as like yeah. a character creator. You're, you're logging into your Alliance account, right? But I do feel like it's generally too limited in yeah. comparison to even other character creations, the, the, uh, character creators that were out at the time, and especially that, that I've seen since that are just way better than that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, uh, you can choose up to three backgrounds for the character for their pre-service history. So you have space or the one you chose, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is where you have military parents, mm. and you grew up in the Alliance, and you know, you're just a, just a, you became a soldier, right? just to please your parents or whatever. Just following. Then there's colonist, which is your parents uh, were part of a colony world and they got raided and they ended up dying and you're like one of the, you know, people who survived that attack. And then there's earthborn, which is you were an orphan who grew up in gangs on the street and Mm. you you went, you enlisted to escape that life in like the slums of some earth metropolis, right? Um, and then there are three other options for your military background or right. psychological profile. So you have Soul Survivor, which is there, you were part of a mission that goes horribly wrong. You're the only one who survived. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had to serve, you know, all these terrible things you had to go through to, like, make it, right? And you have War Hero, which is, you know, against some overwhelming enemy force, you risk your life to save your fellow soldiers, right? Yeah. And then you have Ruthless, the third option, which is you get the job done at any cost. You're cold and brutal and... So for me, it's like, if you want to go Paragon route, it's, I think the best choices are probably Spacer, War Hero, right? Mm, yeah. And then if you want to go the, uh, the, the Renegade route, I think the, um, the Earthborn Ruthless is, 
is, is like a nice combination for that. Yeah, yeah. And the only difference that this mm. really makes is kind of how characters will talk to you or treat you from time to time. Yeah. And particularly if in, they the, know. in the opening, yeah. when they're like, uh, I think it's the ambassador and, and Anderson are talking, and I think Hackett is, is also there. They're like talking about Shepard as, mm. as he or she is looking out the window at Earth, right? You're leaving Earth. Yeah. And it's like, is this really, you know, the type of person that we can trust yes. for this? And, and he, the ambassador will say that type of thing, be very skeptical of you, if you're not a spacer or a war hero. If you're a ruthless or a colonist or an earthborn or something like that, hmm. it'll be like, I don't know, can we really trust this person? Is that really the kind of person who wants <laughs> saving the galaxy? Right, yes. <laughs> and, and then Anderson's like, oh, it's the only type of person who can save the right, galaxy. Right. Whereas the other way, He'll say um, something like, "Oh, you can't, uh, you can't discredit uh, her, his or her courage." You know, like right. he's more like accepting or like willing to take on uh, Shepard in this role that they're trying to guide him or her into. Well, what about Shepard, Earthborn, but no record of his family? Doesn't have one. He was raised on the streets. Learned to look out for himself. He got most of his unit killed on Torfin. He gets the job done, no matter what the cost. Is that the kind of person we want protecting the galaxy? That's the only kind of person who can protect the galaxy. I'll make the call. Well, what about Shepard? She's a spacer, lived aboard starships most of her life. Military service runs in the family. Both her parents were in the Navy. She proved herself during the Blitz. Held off enemy forces on the ground until reinforcements arrived. She's the only reason Elysium is still standing. We can't question her courage. Humanity needs a hero. And Shepard's the best we've got. I'll make the call. I believe I did Soul Survivor for that one. Soul Survivor? Yeah. yeah. I've, I've done a bunch of different combinations on my four playthroughs, and that was basically the only difference I've seen between them so far. That's like the biggest difference it makes. Yeah, just um, like the intro. So you haven't done a female Shepherd run before. Never. Right? I kind of wanted to talk about some of the differences between the male and female Shepherd because Landon would swear by this too, but there's a lot of people who say that Jennifer Hale's performance is a lot is better, better I've heard that. than I've Mark heard that. Mir, or Mark, I think he's Mark Mir is his name, who does the, yeah, Mark Mir. I was Mir. right. So uh, it's kind of a funny picture. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, Mark Mir is fine. He's just really, he's pretty stale, I would say. Yeah. Um, and I think that, 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 that it's, a, it's a hard job to take. It's like you have to be like three different characters <laughs> almost in, in all the responses. There's like yeah. the neutral, the paragon, and the renegade. Yeah. It's like trying to balance that while, as we know, you know, Voice actors are not in rooms together a lot of yes, times. Yes, yes, they're, they're in a little. They're, they're trying to perform, but they're not studio. bouncing it off of someone else, and so they're yeah. reading all these lines by themselves. It's a very tough thing to do, um, especially at this time. Right, this was before they had like the really great uh, motion capture technology, where oh, all the actors yeah. are on a stage together and they're like playing the whole scene out and doing their, yeah. you know, their fight scenes and talking with each other and you know, getting a lot more convincing performances for games like Uncharted and mm -hmm. um, you know, The Last of Us and things like that. But I, I think he's fine. Like, he's not great, but he's not terrible. 
but a lot of people swear that she's way better. So yeah. this was my first time really doing a playthrough as a female shepherd. And mm. uh, honestly, I feel like it's pretty comparable to the yeah. male shepherd. I think that they're kind of confined mm. by this we got to act the scene out three different ways <laughs> yeah. and, <laughs> and basically jumping between those they give kind of it's it's kind of like a neutral yeah. ish performance but yeah. I'm I'm okay with it that. It works for a, a military person, a soldier. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I think it works because of that. It's not yeah. like the deepest like most dynamic or a huge range of emotions or right. something like that. Right, he doesn't get excited or anything. But yeah. this is a soldier. Yeah. They're very focused individuals, yeah. right? So I think that it works for either or. I, I don't really prefer one or the other after having played Female Shepherd. Um, but uh, maybe that will change over the course of the game because I'll be doing the whole thing with both, right? Mm. Um, okay. The opening scene on the Normandy, it really sets out to establish that the mission to Eden Prime, while it's like supposed to be this shakedown mission, right? And what that means is it's, it's um, you're testing yeah. like certain like systems or it's like a test run to, right. to make sure that everything's like, you know, working correctly. That's what shakedown means, right? Um, you're looking for possible faults or defects or system failures or whatever. Because this is a very newly commissioned ship. It's like a state-of-the-art thing, the Normandy. Yeah, yeah. And it's a stealth ship. So they're, they're, they're going to be testing the stealth um, you know, features of the ship on this little shakedown mission. But the first guy that you come up to after that first, uh, you know, you have Joker and Kaiden who are on the bridge and they have mm -hmm. a little banter back together. Yeah, they're fun. You're called back to go meet with Anderson. The first NPC that you meet on the way is Navigator Presley, the navigator of the ship. And he's just like super skeptical. He's like, mm -hmm. this makes no sense. Why, why do we have a terrain inspector on board? Yes, like, exactly. why is the captain taking this so seriously? Mm -hmm. Like, something's going on here. He's like really like, um, you know, like uh, showing a lot of suspicion about what this mission's really about. And then you go talk to, you can talk to Dr. Chakwas and mm -hmm. uh, Colonel Jenkins, and they kind of similarly bring up some, something's not quite right about this. Yeah. I don't know what's really going on here. That's kind of like the purpose of these first couple of conversations. Um, and in the midst of that, one thing that I really like about Mass Effect is you can kind of choose how much background and lore you get in conversations or not. Yeah, yeah. Because the way that the wheel is set up... And you can end it and... Yeah, yeah end it yeah. at any time. Yeah, whenever you want. The wheel is set up to where answers on the left side, again, the top answers are more Paragon, yeah. lower are more Renegade, the middle are neutral. But this is all like investigation along the left side of the wheel. Yeah. And that's just asking questions, learning more about because uh, I don't know what Protheans are, I don't know what Spectres are, I don't know what the Citadel yeah. Council is, I don't know <laughs> who the Turians are, yeah. I don't know any of this stuff. They, I, if I, just I feel came like they did this. a pretty good job skipping over the as you know dialogue. There's they, a couple they of instances. They do some of that. Yes. <clears throat> but they do it in a way that's not so awful. Yes. <laughs> it actually doesn't feel so bad. I feel like there's like two or three places and there's a, a, I, I kind of recognize the technique they yes. use to frame, as you, as you know. to frame their as you know yes. dialogue. And I, I wrote a note for this because the way that they do it, because there are some instances where they do a really good job of informing you without it sounding like I'm yes. saying to you what you already know I, character. I right? appreciated that. It's, it takes a lot of skill to do that, but I think they did that several times. And so there's a couple of parts where 
like they did a really good job, for instance, with Nihilus and Captain Anderson mentioning our technology is based on Prothean technology right. and they died out 50,000 years ago. They do a good job of more or less telling you who the Protheans are. A research team on Eden Prime unearthed some kind of beacon during an excavation. It was Prothean. I thought the Protheans vanished 50,000 years ago. Their legacy still remains. The mass relays, the Citadel, our ship drives. It's all based on Prothean technology. This is Big Shepard. The last time humanity made a discovery like this, it jumped our technology forward 200 years. But then there's a Prothean option in the investigation part yeah. where Commander Shepard asks, what can you tell me about the Protheans? Right. And Captain Anderson's answer is, only what they told me back in school. What do you know about the Protheans? Just what they taught us in school. They were a technologically advanced species that ruled the galaxy 50,000 years ago. Yes, and they yeah. frame their, as you know, dialogue with that every yes. time. And yeah. I was like, that's kind of, it, it's not great. <laughs> so like, Dr. Chakwas does this and yeah. Ashley does this later. Where it's like, what can you tell me about the Spectres? Only what I've heard. What do you know about the Spectres? Only what I've heard. Spectre agents work directly for the Citadel Council. They usually work alone or in small groups. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then they'll just dump their expositional dialogue on <clears throat> Captain Anderson, what can you tell me about the Protheans? Only what I learned back in school. And then he'll go and he'll like exposition dump on you. And then Ashley, you ask her about the Geth. Uh, what can you tell me about the Geth? Only what they taught me back in whatever. What else do you know about the Geth? Just what I remember from history class back in school. They're synthetics, non-organic life forms with limited AI programming, created by the Quarians a few centuries ago. Yeah. Like, each time they framed their as you, di as you know dialogue in exactly the same way. Mm, okay, and so okay. it was like, that was a little clumsy, but it's only three examples, and all of them are optional. You do not yeah, have yeah, yeah. to do the yeah. investigation dialogues. I feel like um, w w initially when I was asking about the the Protheans or something along those lines. Um, the answer we got was it was pretty good because he'll tell you in like a sentence. He'll say, "Oh, this is," and I can't remember exactly what it was, but he'll say, "Oh, this is um, this is what they are." He'll answer your question in a very well. As you know, all of our technology <laughs> comes from the Protheans. Yeah. But dang it, like where did they go? I have no idea. This whole thing's crazy. Like the the council's on our butts, and like he turns it into like an opinion kind of thing. Yes. Like he then yes. offers his opinion, which is actually pretty good because how often how often Nowadays, do we uh, explain to each other how the federal government of the United <laughs> States works? Not sure. very often, but sure. sometimes we do. Sometimes we do if we're going to offer our opinion on it, mm -hmm. right? So it's like I even agree. even if we were going to talk about you know the the Neanderthals, like I would bring up, yeah, the Neanderthals died out like thirty thousand years ago. But even though you already know that, but but. But dude, they, they wore capes and like they were kind of interesting and whatever. Like yeah. I'd offer my opinion after telling you the stuff that we already know. You establish what you know and agree on. They did a better job in this game than basically any game yeah. I've ever played. Yeah, there were some great examples of how to yeah. do as you know dialogue yes. well. Yes. And I'm, I'm going to play some of those in the cut. Um, and there were other, like this particular way, only what they told me back in school. Yeah, it's like every good. time they did that, I was like, dang it. You had that before. You didn't need have this to one. come up with a creative yeah. new way each time, and that's just rough. It's tough. It's hard. But uh, in any case, um, aside from that, the dialogue is very natural. I think it's it's written really well. The conversations feel very convincing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's just really fun to talk to people and learn more about the the world. However, 
I do. This is also my first time really doing a, a dedicated Renegade playthrough. <laughs> I, yeah. I never do Renegade. Yeah, yeah. Me and me. if it continues on the path it's currently on, I'm going to hate the Renegade option okay. because. To me, it feels like hysterically out of place mm. each time he actually starts talking. It's like he just, it's like a caricature of an asshole character. Okay. Rather than some kind of like nuanced look at a cold blooded, <laughs> ruthless soldier who's just conditioned or for, right. his, for his own reasons, psychological profile. He thinks this is the most effective way to, to get the job done. Right. I think there's a lot of interesting things you could do mm. psychologically with a character like that, where you can make um, the audience go like, well, I can't necessarily condemn this character. I understand why they do it the way they're doing it. it you can create these conflicting scenarios where it's mm -hmm. like, this is, the, this is the way it has to be done, and you can see why they feel that way, right. rather than just the character's always being a dick to everybody every time yeah. he talks to them. The council helped fund this project. They have a right to send someone to keep an eye on their investment. That's enough. You're soldiers. Act like it. We're making a covert pickup on Eden Prime. That's why we needed the stealth systems operational. I don't like being kept in the dark, Captain. Obviously, this goes beyond mere human interests, Commander. This discovery could affect every species in council space. We can handle this on our own. Nihilus isn't just here for the beacon. He's also here to evaluate you. Since when do we answer to the Spectres? That's why I put your name forward as a candidate for the Spectres. I don't like people making decisions about my future. This isn't about you, Shepard. Humanity needs this. The blast knocked you cold. The Lieutenant and I carried you back here to the ship. I don't suppose it occurred to you that Eden Prime has medical facilities? I figured we could use a soldier like her. She's been reassigned to the Normandy. I don't want her on my ship. I'm the captain of this ship, Commander. And I want Williams on our crew. And that's what Renegade feels like. It feels like a really half-baked mm. attempt at what could have been really interesting. And so I really hate the Renegade options so far. The mm. Paragon just feels way more natural to me. Like, that's no. the, the version of the character that's the default, like, canonical version of the yeah, character. Yeah. And it, anyways, I'll, I'll see how that evolves over the course of the game, but so far I really hate it. The, the difficult thing about that, and this is just the way the whole game is structured, um, you have to pick one or the other. You can't pick the middle route, right? Yeah. So you have to be Paragon or Renegade. If well, you I, can if, if you don't care about not getting the Paragon points. Exactly, or Renegade because points. you need the points to do things later. <laughs> later. Right? And I happen to you already don't know that. know that going into it. Yes, yes, you don't know it going into it. But I would occasionally experiment with some Renegade options yeah. if I didn't know that that would actually cost me down the road and I will never be able to attain perfect Paragon Peak yeah. top points, you know? Sure. And uh, that's, like, I don't like that. So I've ne I, I, I likely, this whole playthrough, will never know what you're talking about with Renegade. <laughs> I'll have to look it up somewhere. Well, I, I, I have, to it, look up I have it on the archive channel. Yeah. The, the, the playthrough is all uploaded there, so That'll you'll be, be able to reference that. Um, okay, but aside from that, I have to say that I really like how the entire prologue feels like this chain of intriguing mysteries, just like one after the other, right? So it, it starts down with, wait a minute, is this really a shakedown mission? Yeah. What yeah. are we really doing here, right? It's kind of a, a nice little grab, a little hook. Okay, yeah. What's going on, right? 
Um, and then, oh my gosh, who is attacking the then colony? Then you see that video. Because once it adds a whole new yeah, mystery. Yeah. Nihilus and Anderson tell you the real reason you're there. We're going to go retrieve mystery this solved. Prothean beacon. Yes. They introduce a new mystery. Yes. Which even is deeper. Someone is attacking the colony. Who is it? And yeah. and, uh, and they don't Anderson know. mentions the terminus systems and these. Um, sort of like lawless regions of space outside of Citadel space, yeah, yeah. where like gangs and other like um, criminal organizations, sort of like, you know, where they operate. Like they would be willing to come in and start a war to get a Prothean beacon, because that's like a huge leap in te technology, yeah, potentially, yeah. right? So we've got to secure this thing. We yeah. cannot let that fall into the wrong hands. So, oh no, the, the, it's being attacked. But wait a minute, that ship, that giant mothership that doesn't look like a terminus system. Right. No, nobody there, none of the experts, Captain Anderson or Nihilus, are able to like just identify, oh, what's that? Yeah, that's They're all weird. really <laughs> unsettled by it because they have no idea what it is. Yeah. So it's like, uh, what's happening here, right? So you get down yeah. there, you realize it's the Geth. And then you start to learn about the Geth. Oh, the Geth are this synthetic life form that were created by the Koreans 200 years ago. And you know this is why AI is illegal. Developing AI mm. is illegal in the galactic civilization because it's like the court the, the geth are not like a true ai but they they're like um like almost like a hive mind race okay. they, when they get together in a group they become smarter than mm. just an individual right nice so they're not like a true ai they're That's like a cool. synth they're like a virtual intelligence mm. but they become more intelligent the more there are together in an area and I think that's supposed to carry over into gameplay too. Like the Geth mm. will be smarter when they fight you when there's more Geth you're fighting at once. But I don't remember that. Don't quote me on that. But I, I seem to remember that being the case. Okay. But anyways, you learn that, oh, the Geth have come out after 200 years of yeah. living way outside of Citadel space and just yeah. not bothering us. All of a sudden the Geth have showed up and they're trying to retrieve this Prothean beacon. Yeah. Holy crap, why, why has that happened? Who could have called, you know, who could have predicted that? Then Nihilus gets freaking murdered by Saren, yes. <laughs> who is a Turian specter himself, and it's like he's the one leading these, this Geth army. What is he up to? What's his deal? Anderson tells you later he hates humanity. Mm. Well, why is that? You learn more about that he's, in the he's book. He's a specter, which is crazy, yeah. even crazier, because right, you had an idea of what the specter were, yeah, and then you get to this point, and then later on you can talk to people. What happens if a specter goes rogue? You know, yeah, because exactly. We just saw it happen. Yeah. Now what? You know, these are like these are outside of the law operating people. Like, what do you do? And it's like, well, you gotta use the other specters to go kill them, basically. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's crazy. And then you come across that uh, that that th there's these two scientists who sort of like bunkered down, right? You have to do data or you have to do encryption to like get into where they're yeah. locked in. And there's this guy who's acting really crazy. And he's talking about all this prophecy. And, yeah. Uh, you know, this is the end times, and he's being yes. all crazy. And this is the, the trope for these character types. Yes. They're always telling the truth. They're always I telling know. you exactly the prophecies what. Prophecies are always real, <laughs> right? There is a really a prophecy. But it, it made me wonder if maybe he had some sort of contact in some way with the Prothean Beacon, and that's why he's oh, messed up the way he I is. I didn't even think of that because the contact didn't happen until later. Yeah. It's like yeah. maybe maybe that's the reason he's having all these visions and all this like So the prophecies talk. are the but voice in his head. They that's also the mentioned that he needs to take his medication, so I don't know yes. if that's the truth. She said she had given it to him. We just need to wait for it to take effect. <laughs> oh, dude, if you do the ruthless uh, renegade path yeah. here, there's an option for I'll shut him up. Because oh he's kind of annoying. Gosh. And he literally just like walks up and knocks the guy out. Just, oh, like, I thought you were going to say we're going to kill him. 
No. And it's just like, That's what crazy. are you doing? It's just, I, I was laughing out loud. It's like, this is so stupid. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> Say goodnight, Manuel. You cannot silence the truth. My voice must be heard. Oh my god! What did you do? That might have been a little extreme, Commander. You can't just go around whacking people in the head. <laughs> if you're going to allow a path to be that renegade, then the Paragon um, doesn't seem all that paragon -y. It just seems no. normal. It's just it's like, like the normal It's just a nice-ish guy. So <laughs> the, it's like the regular human you've got a general, <laughs> regular, nice-ish type person, and then you've got a horrible, horrible person. But mm -hmm. you don't have like a super crazy, above yeah. all, like angelic, perfectly nice. Like, yeah, the options don't seem balanced. It's silly. In the center. And I wouldn't want them to be. <laughs> Uh, it really, it's it's just funny. Yeah, it would be nice if they had a neutral path that led to neutral options. It's like a third. So you have like the Paragon and the Renegade and a middle thing. It's yeah. like I can use my my mediation. Yes. To like you know get things. But that done ruins in the, the Bioware's yeah. like morality thing theories. Yeah. Anyways, who is Saren? What is this Prothean beacon? What is it? You know, uh, what is what is it that that Shepard is getting like, um, you know, a premonition about, like all these like chain of mysteries that to me were really great yeah. hooks. Um, it really got me engaged and I was like, okay, man, like what's going to happen next? What's going on here? Um, I don't want to say too much because this could potentially be a spoiler, but I do want to say that pay attention or just think, keep in the back of your mind as you play if this is your first time playing the game. Mm. How well, I'll just put it this way. I think one of the things that really sold me on Mass Effect and, and said, I'm going to follow this through to the end, mm. was that everything that we're learning, like every little thing, uh, how humanity came to be part of this galactic civilization, the Protheans, like all of this stuff are, are just so well established for big reveals late in the game. And okay. it's very clever. It's very subtle. Mm. And it's just like... The moment it comes together is really like a gut punch. It's so yeah. cool. Oh, cool. So just like playing it, you know, as, as having played the game already, and kind of like with Xenogears, right? Mm. Picking up on the... Yeah. I was like, the, oh, man, like that's a, that's, that's a hint, and that's yeah. a setup, and that's a setup, and that's mm. a setup. The setups here are great. <laughs> nice. And I just, I really like where, where it's going to, and so... Um, I, th I think the first mission, the prologue, is really quite excellent. The, the last kind of scene that they show is, is Saren. He, par he apparently like secures the beacon and he like gives it to the Geth robot dudes to like go, okay, like take it off world. And then he goes back into the mothership thing and takes off. Yeah. And so then when he learns, because an Asari character kind of comes up and reports, uh, we didn't get the beacon. Yeah. They took it back. And also um, a human like One of the made contact, contact with it. And he just gets pissed. Yeah, he freaks out. <laughs> and we don't know what exactly it means. You see some things. When you make contact, you see these weird vision-y type things. Yeah. And you don't know what any of it means. Yeah. And then, and then you just kind of wake up somewhere else, I guess. But, but it's like Shepard has gained some knowledge or power somehow through yeah. this thing, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess That's a pretty big later. trope for science fiction seems, and fantasy. Yeah. To set up mysteries is to yeah. the character has some kind of vision of the future or some premonition of what's to come. Yes, you can't yeah. make sense of it. You got to go on a quest to like to put all the pieces. What it together. all means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good framing device. It's it's part of the genre, you know. Yeah. But um, I think it's handled pretty well here. 
But yeah, Saren is pissed and he's like, we gotta get rid of that human. Like, mm. we cannot let him live. Or her live, depending on which you are. It's like, so Saren didn't, is, is not happy that we had that vision. And mm. it's wrecking his plans somehow. So it's another sort of yeah. like little mystery that dropped there, right? What, what is that beacon all about? What's that vision all about? So that's where we basically played up to. Next time we're gonna be covering um, going to the Citadel, making our report of what happened on yeah. Eden Prime. Doing all the little mini things to do at the Citadel. And then the first mission after that, which I think is gonna be Novaria, hmm. um, the planet Novaria. But again, if I end up changing that, I'll, um, I'll make a note here, I'll okay. make a correction. But that's it for today's episode. Good stuff. Sick. Thanks for watching, everybody. Uh, and, and let me know what you guys thought of our uh, the bridge uh, uh, the bridge of our starship that we created here. We we just yeah. made a trip across the galaxy, across the Milky Way galaxy. All the way. All the screens are synced to make the same. This is like our our front our forward view screen, right? Yeah. yeah. Our right and left view screens. We're this traversing. Is, We're going. This is to our uh, the bridge of our starship, the SSV Arc One. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> uh, anyways, let me know what you guys think of uh, of the set. I worked really hard to make it cool. We might yeah. add a few more knickknacks here and there. We'll yeah. see. But oh, show them, show them the mugs. Oh, yeah, and then the mugs. So we got these N7 mugs. This one on the back, it says, uh, I should go. I should go. <laughs> I should go. Which we'll talk a lot about uh, <laughs> later yeah. on. In Galaxy's the... best commander. Yep, Galaxy's best That's commander. Good stuff. Anyways, thanks for watching, guys. We'll see you again next week. Peace out. <laughs>